0: One great thing about land transport is that it slows you down. One, it slows you down, and two, you, you call the places in between. That Literally, the place in between is sometimes a rickety bus or a second-class train, where suddenly, um, while you're in the capital city, you're going from tourist attraction to tourist attraction, hanging out with other tourists, which, as I say, is fine, But then suddenly suddenly you're on this bus to the provinces and everybody's looking at you like you're the tourist attraction, like you're in (laughs) Bolivia and you're the most interesting person on the bus just because you're sort of awkward and sweaty and you've never been there before. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today's episode is another remix of my online book club discussion of The Vagabond's Way, which has been taking place each month since the beginning of this year. This chat took place a few months ago and covers the April section of my book, which explores how to get past the tourist veneer of places and get to know them better. As this episode drops, I'll be on the road in Kenya and I plan to report back about that experience in future episodes. Today's book club chat, which as always is hosted by the English writer Luke Richardson, covers topics like how to get the most out of tourist zones and how to take photos in such a way that it enhances your experience rather than distracting from it. We talk about how eating food in a place can teach you more about that place than any list of facts or guidebook abstractions. We start by talking about the idiosyncrasies of crossing land borders as a traveler in the context of a Kurdish smuggler in Syria who told me years ago, quote, Land borders exist only in the minds
1: of bureaucrats. Let's listen in. Life on the road, and I'm I'm interested as if this happened to you uh, elsewhere, Rolf, but you get such wisdom from very unlikely people when you're traveling, don't you? You know, you said there that wisdom of the, the Kurdish smuggler who, who who said that land borders only exist in the mind of bureaucrats. And that's not something that a university education teaches you. But that's just something about life on the road, isn't it? These little sort of gems of wisdom that you get from those people that you meet along the way.
0: Yeah, that's a story that's from Syria. And I, I learned so many great lessons from Syria just because it's less frequented by travelers. Um, and actually, it was, it was plunged into war so much in the last decade that it might not even be safe to go there. But I just realized that like when I was in Damascus, I was walking down the street, I heard this beautiful gospel, like American style gospel music. And it's like, is that a church? So I walked into the church and it was full of Sudanese, South Sudanese refugees. And so I hung out with the South. In Syria, I was hanging out with South Sudanese refugees who in many ways were more well-traveled than me and spoke more languages than me. And it was a really fun surprise. What also happened is when I met these, these smugglers up north, they're basically like the subtext of what they're saying is like, yeah, the nation state has only existed since the 19th century. For most of human history, a border is either a river or an ocean, or it's just the open land. You know, it's it's how um, nomads work. And I, and I, in fact, I think in places like Africa, when they divided it across borders, nomadic tribes had trouble uh, when there was suddenly a national border between Namibia and South Africa. And it's like, yeah, we've always run our herds across this desert. I don't know why we suddenly have to take out a passport at this border, right? And so I think what was, and this was at a time when uh, it was before the the most recent Iraq wars, before the 2003 invasion, And so we were sort of in a Kurdish part of Syria, which is close to the Kurdish part of of Iraq. And they're basically saying, yeah, we feel more Kurdish than we do Syrian or Iraqi. And so if you want to go to Erbil, let's go to Erbil. (laughs) I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. you might think that, but I have to procure my passport. And Saddam Hussein is still very much in, in, in power there. But what it did, like most good travel experiences, it made me think, it made me think, oh, wait a second. Yeah, a border is an abstraction. A land border is a is a weird, weird abstraction that's very historically unique. Uh, and it's fun to think about. And I I to this day I love getting a new stamp on my passport. I went to the Faroe Islands this summer. And it's like, yeah, this is I'm covering new ground. There's something very concrete about land borders, but there's something also very ridiculous about land borders, which is why I threw that in there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly right. The whole idea of this is this tree is. Bangladesh and that tree is India you know it, it sort of makes no sense but in the same way in our in our 21st century world is is just part of the furniture isn't it uh, moving on to april the 6th you talk about overland travel having experiential rewards which i completely agree with because i love the ideas of the places in between you know you 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 go to those those provincial cities or those smaller towns on the way between two places that all of the tourists go to although to get to so to be a bit more practical here, for, for, for those of us who take trips which are limited by time, how do, we, how do we find those places in between? Or how do we allow an experience that means that we can find those places in between? I think you sh- you shrink your ambition a little bit. I think sometimes we look
0: at a map, again, this map of nation states, and we see this beautiful country of France or Bolivia or Uzbekistan. It's like, Ooh, I have two weeks. I'm going to get it, see as much of that as possible. And then what happens is you can't, those are giant countries. You know, you can't see as much as possible. If you have two weeks, nothing against two week travels, but really shrink the zone, do your research and find what part of Uzbekistan do I want to go hiking there? Do I want to see the, the cities? Do I want to see the cultural history and then create a plan from there? Um, Because one great thing about land transport is that it slows you down. One, it slows you down, and two, you you call the places in between that literally, the place in between is sometimes a rickety bus or a second class train, where suddenly, um, while you're in the capital city, you're going from tourist attraction to tourist attraction, hanging out with other tourists, which as I say is fine, but then suddenly, suddenly you're on this bus to the provinces and everybody's looking at you like you're the tourist attraction, like you're in <laughs> Bolivia and you're the most interesting person on the bus just because you're sort of awkward and sweaty and you've never been there before. That's a great gift of travel. It's as a guy who's six foot three doesn't fit on small buses very well, it's sometimes a challenge, but it's, it's really a part of that in-between part of travel. And, and actually this is something that can happen even, like say you go to Buenos Aires uh, for a week, well, take those local buses, you know, instead of getting a taxi every time, figure out the bus route, because suddenly you're going to be in the texture of that city in a way that local people are. So I'm a big fan of uh, of slowing down, which allows you to take that slower transport, that land transport. I mean, we live in an age where you can take a flight. You can take short flights. It's really easy to do from city to city inside of a country to speed things up. Whereas sometimes you go to more places, but you experience less because you're not really committed to that chicken bus full of really interesting people who who want nothing better than to talk to you. Uh, So yeah, that's why I included that chapter in there. Yeah, something I say in this book, as well as vagabonding is know your options, but not your destiny. Those those blog posts that break uh, six days of travel down by the hour are fun to read, but then just throw them away. You have that information, like studying for a test, you go in and the most important parts, the most exciting parts of that will stay with you. But then you can leave room to breathe inside of your itinerary uh, because, as I've said before, places have their own wisdom. Places will create a conversation within you that won't start until you arrive. And so if, if you're following the advice of blogger number X of uh, and then you show up and realize that maybe you're not exactly like blogger number X, then it's
1: good to leave wiggle room and to slow down. On April the 8th, Rolf, you talk about tourist crowds, and you've mentioned this already, actually. It's queuing for the Louvre, I think you said, about 20 minutes ago. Now, I saw an advert the other day, unrelated to the book, and it was about this new smartphone that you can buy, that you take a photo of you in front of a monument, and it will digitally remove all of the crowds from around you, so it appears as though you're the only person there. Now, now, that made me a little bit sad, actually. It made me a little bit sad, because is there something so sort of, Egotistical in our modern world, that tourists want to be alone at the Taj Mahal or or the only one next to the Great Pyramid or Machu Picchu or wherever. I feel that's I feel that's sort of missing the point. But I wonder if you've got any ideas about that. Yeah, no, I, I understand that in- instinct because even before smartphones, I remember
0: waiting at Key West or in Seoul, Panmunjom, and just sort of waiting for enough time, so there are fewer tourists, so it made it look like I was having more of a unique experience. This this isn't unique to the digital age, but it's really exacerbated things in the digital age. And this feels like inevitable. Of course, they're gonna invent a filter that filtered out the other tourists. Of course, they're gonna do that. And with AI, it's probably just going to be just take your picture and the AI will auto-generate your picture and all the the seven wonders of the world or anything else. Pretty <laughs> soon travel is not going to be necessary at all, which is, which is part of why I included that chapter, because um, I think if we don't recognize that sort of annoying 45 minutes in line for a tourist attraction as part of the travel experience and suddenly our mind goes away and we're not really absorbing the the excitement of what's happening at the place where we are. And this this is any you know world heritage site is going to have a ticket office and a line and some annoying things that happen before you get in and experience the wonder of those places but I think those those lines and offices are not unconnected to the wonder of those places that it's all part of the displacement of travel and I think because we grew up reading magazines or looking at At social media accounts that don't have other tourists in them, that doesn't mean we get the people who took those pictures didn't didn't have that experience. You know, they had other tourists there too. So I think in celebrating travel, it's good to celebrate every aspect of travel. And that sometimes means these banal moments that involve other tourists. And sometimes it involves these life changing epiphanies when you're when you are all alone at the beach in the sunrise after having stayed up all night with someone you didn't know existed the
1: day before. And so they, they all count and they're all good in their own way. Yeah. I think you're right that's a that's a good way to think of it they all count and they're all they're all good in their own way i like that and that links quite nicely actually to the next one that spoke to me april the 13th in which you write about tourist destinations bending to the expectations of tourists now i remember this has happened in one of my travel careers where i turned up in this beautiful beach bar i think it was somewhere in the caribbean and I, I bought a beer and sat there. I was listening to the to the waves crash against the beach and the, and the bar owner had seen that an English person had walked in. So instantly put a soft rock CD on the machine and turned it up. <laughs> and I was just thinking this has ruined the vibe for me because I was really enjoying the natural world. But he was trying to create something that for me, he thought felt like home, I imagine, for, for me. Um but I suppose you've got to be thankful for it. Where where does that line exist, though? Because no one wants to use a squat toilet with the two strange tubs that sit next to it. In one side, you know, I appreciate the Western plumbing that these places put in. But on the other side, soft rock on a Caribbean beach, I, I like less. Where's the line, do you think?
0: <laughs> well, one reason why I included that is because sometimes we get annoyed in tourist zones. We get annoyed that, you know, people are sort of... Uh, in our face, or they are putting on that soft rock. And I think you have to understand that the reason why they do that is they think that's what you want. You know, oftentimes they're trying to sell you souvenirs and they're using the same strategy that worked the last time they sold a souvenir, but sometimes they just want, they they want to please you. They want to give you the experience you came looking for, you know? So if you're an American, maybe they have a hamburger in a restaurant, you know? Uh, and I remember the first time I went to Korea, I would get in the taxi and inevitably like, the taxi driver would put on like Kenny G or Michael Jackson. At the time I was like a, I was like a hardcore grunge guy. I was like indie rock and very proud of it. And it's like, why do they play this cheesy American music when I get in the taxi? Well, they didn't, they don't know that they just were playing American music. You know, they're playing Western music instead of the traditional Korean music they may have played at that same moment in the 1990s. And in retrospect, that's actually kind of awesome. Like the, the taxi driver thought, Here's an American I know. I have one one CD by an American. Oh, it's Kenny G. Oh, this guy's gonna love this. And so again, <laughs> if you understand the just how, um, how 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 complex these experiences are, I think that you can appreciate them more. And I think sometimes this is why I love. You know, we, we give lip service to getting getting off the beaten path. But sometimes I like going to provincial villages is that you you have fewer expectations ahead of you, you know, that that people don't have a lot of previous tourists who've been there. So they just sort of they're just very raw and curious as opposed to giving you a hamburger because you're American
1: or soft rock or whatever else. A couple of questions coming in, which is great. Thank you for those. Um, Renee asked the first one. So, Rolf, on April 29th, you talk about keeping hardships in perspective. And it seems counterintuitive to me to meditate on adverse outcomes as a way of training oneself not to worry about them. It seems like a good reason to put off travel. And I have a lot of friends that don't travel because they spend so much time imagining the worst-case scenarios.
0: I, I wanted to put that in because I think sometimes... we do worry about travel and sometimes we worry so much that we don't even travel. But then once we're on the road, the worst case scenario is in our head so much that we can't fully appreciate the the subtle joys of the actual case scenario that's playing out before us. And that sometimes, you know, if, if you have a stomach illness, your first day on the trip, then your mind goes to how much worse it could be on the last day of the trip. When in fact, oftentimes it's through working through those small inconveniences that we break through to a more enlightened and and rich experience of the journey. Um, Yeah, so uh, I think I mentioned negative visualization, which is sort of a, a stoic adjacent practice where you imagine yourself, what is the worst that could happen? And what would I do if the worst happened? As a way of preparing ourselves for the much um simpler, more uh humble challenges that face us on the road. So in a way, it's the psychology of coming in terms with travel because so much of travel is unknown and the unknown is a is a cause for anxiety in many aspects of life. But so there's so much of it in travel that I think it's good to sort of have a a, a nodding relationship with the worst case scenario, just so you can enjoy the the scenario that that the the much ple- more pleasant scenario that has been presented to you. Denise, would you like to
1: share your question with us?
0: Hi, everybody. Um, Yeah, I was uh, just commenting on the April 18th, which is the bargaining and haggling meditation. (laughs) And, you know, I I really appreciate it that you have this section in there um, and, and in a way of trying to normalize it and approach that historical aspect of it. But for me, it's something I still really struggle with. I, you know, especially if you're in a place where you know you can, afford the item you know right off the bat and um I was I think I posted in there you know there was an instance where I thought I'm gonna do this you know I got all psyched up I'm trying to haggle with someone you know I got the price I wanted victorious you know walked away and then later as I'm passing the family's all praying with the money like holding it up <laughs> and praying and I thought oh gosh I feel terrible right
1: so you know, it's just trying to get to that point like
0: um you know where you feel comfortable and I just want to you know have you got to that point uh, where it feels natural and how do you get to that point is, is what I'm trying to get. Yeah. I don't know. if I, No, I haven't gotten to the point where it feels natural. I think I've gone through phases as a traveler where I'm better at it than others. Like when I was a dirtbag backpacker, um, I had the time and the incentive to bargain in a savvy way. One, I didn't have very much money. And two, it's like I didn't have any place to be anytime soon. So I, I remember there's a fun time in the Souk in, in in Cairo where some backpackers and me from the from the hostel we were staying, we decided to have a contest to buy as much stuff for as little money as possible in the market. Now that sounds like that might be offensive to the vendors, but the vendors know what's going on. So suddenly the vendors are like, wait a second, they want to buy the broken souvenir, you know, for a quarter of the price. <laughs> Yeah, we'll sell it to them. <laughs> and so it was a really fun day that got us into the psychologi- psychology of selling because it's a relationship-based thing. And, and I think we've been part of you know um, capitalistic, for, be- for lack of a better word, society for so long that we see products and services as an abstraction as opposed to part of human relationships. And so even in the United States, before the time of uh, mail order catalogs and department stores, but oftentimes the price depended on like how much time you had to interact with the person, how rich you were in relation to them. I think wealthier people just realized they were sort of obligated to pay a little bit more for that bundle of oranges than somebody with less money would have. And so this is another reason why slowing down is a great part of travel, because if you're in a hurry to get out of that market, you're either not going to buy something or you're going to not get a very good deal. And there's nothing wrong with making a family happy, you know, that you've given them a ton of money, which is a very little money for you. In, in developing worlds, this is fine. And one thing that I didn't always like as a backpacker, what people would get mad about, you know, they, they thought they were being cheated but in fact, they are getting things at prices that are way lower than in industrial countries that they lived in. But if you can invest some time into getting to know that person, I mean, when you're in Turkey, there's a reason why you're served tea in the in the market, right? You know same same in Arabic countries as well that there is a protocol to how these transactions work. It's not abstracted in our in our price tag type world. And again, just like a slow bus ride uh, can really be a window into a place and and have you get some interesting relationships. A similar thing can happen in a market. And, and one more story I'll, I'll add while I'm talking about this is I my fourth book was about souvenirs. It's called Souvenir. And so it required me in foreign countries to do research in souvenir markets. And what I realized is that when I went there and I sort of hung out with souvenir vendors when they weren't trying to sell me something and that they were dealing with tourists and they were talking with me is one, they spoke great English. And they were sort of relieved as I was that there wasn't going to be some sort of bargaining transaction. And I just realized how cool they were and how interesting their world was and how annoying it was after I got to know these guys for a couple of hours when the tourist comes in and makes a bunch of demands and leaves in a huff. It's just like, what a jerk, you know? They they should (laughs) have spent 10 more minutes gotten to know Mustafa's name and ask how that stuff was crafted. Was it you or your cousin who made this? And again, it humanizes things in a way that I think often the tourist industry doesn't allow us to embrace haggling as a way to really get to
1: know people and cultures in a way that doesn't need to be transactional. One of my favorite ones from the month, uh, for a similar reason, I suppose, April the 16th, you talk about food being a window into the culture, which I loved. And I enjoyed this because you write specifically about the Spanish notion of tapas. Now, I love tapas in Spain, but I refuse to have tapas in England because they just ruin it. Right. <laughs> you go to a British restaurant for tapas and you pay 15 pounds for a cold bowl of tortilla and a bit of chorizo. And they're playing some really naff music. And, you know, it's just it's just rubbish. They've just missed the whole point the whole point of sort of grazing over four or five hours with beers flowing and foods coming all of the time. And I sort of wonder whether whether this food being a window into the culture is sort of predetermined by having that food at home before you go to the place. I know that's not particularly a question, but I wonder what your thoughts are on that. I was just thinking as you were talking um, that sometimes
0: like the nature of the food will will dictate the nature of, of the meal. Like, um, for example, in Spain, I didn't, I, I literally didn't know tapas was a big thing in the United States for a while. Like Applebee's had a tapas menu. Right. And so I didn't realize that in Spain, it's less about the menu than a ritual. And so it's basically it to simplify it, it's sort of a drinking ritual. If you're going to be going out and having some wine, um, hours before dinner, which is very late in Spain, then have something to eat too, or else you're going to get drunk, right? And so tapas, you have a glass of wine, it has a few tapas that goes with the food here. And then you go over here and beer sort of necessitates other types of tapas. And so by the time you have that 10 o'clock dinner, you won't be drunk and you'll sort of have your appetizer stretched over the course of many hours. It's a very Spanish thing to happen. But then I was also thinking when I was in the Minto, went to my islands about four years ago, we were eating food that my host had hunted that day, you know, that we we were eating meat that they had that they had harvested in the jungle. And this the relationship to that meal is so different when you acquire the food yourself, when you either are eating food that you've planted or that your hosts have planted or hunted. Uh, and it was just so interesting. Like they the, the night before we left, they butchered a chicken. As a tourist, I'll say in my honor, but they may have eaten that chicken anyway. And just the, the the tenderness with which they butchered the chicken, they basically thanked the chicken for the gift it was about to give us, and then they butchered it and they they uh, prepared it and then we ate it. And it's just like we in the West have completely lost relationship to our to to our food, where it comes from, especially if it was once uh, alive in in the, in the animal sense. And so I learned so much about food that had nothing to do with food in Spain, in the Minto Islands. Uh, and I'm sure if, if somebody else has a, a food lesson that they can share with us, I'd love to hear because I think sometimes food is a way to, to really get uh, caught off guard. I think that sometimes we're so used, like when I went to Korea and realized that they didn't eat breakfast cereal for breakfast, some of them ate these soups and and other things like kimchi. And it's just like what? I realized how culturally weird my own food was. Uh, and so, so yeah, if any of you have ever had a, um, an epiphany about food on the road, throw it in the chat. I'd love to hear about it. But yeah, it, it's an ongoing thing. And and now that I'm married to Kiki and my wife is a big foodie that she, she sort of has a nose for food and it's, and it's nuances and it's, you know, secrecies in a way that I didn't appreciate until I was traveling with her. And so food, food is a gift that keeps on giving. There's, if you allow yourself to slow down, and savor those meals and ask questions about them, then that allows you to be surprised everywhere you go.
1: I love also, we talked about about half an hour ago about how things transcend borders. And I think food is one of them, isn't it? You can have the the, the whole idea of a, a particular style of cooking doesn't just exist in one place and it doesn't see the border, it, it travels. You know, it it can travel across a whole region and pick up these slight changes as it goes. I don't know enough about food to be able to give you an example, but I'm aware that that (laughs) that that is the way things go.
0: Well, well, I can just because I had that hamburger that was marketed to me in India and it it tasted like the world's worst meatloaf on the world's worst bread. <laughs> and, and that's the thing, India has fantastic food. India has a whole nation within its nation, dozens of nations within its nations that has fantastic food. And that's a good reason. Actually, well, in Korea, a Mexican restaurant opened up when I went there. and We went there and it's like, it was, it was sort of Mexican food, but it was like Mexican food as filtered through Korean ingredients. And it was fun to see, but it wasn't necessarily really uh good good mexican food. Uh and so
1: yeah totally totally there's a, there's a thousand ways that food can surprise you. Betsy you wrote a comment. So well. sorry I didn't see it before before Denise wrote in. Are you yeah, in a position just, to speak with us? Yeah yeah just the uh the culture of of bread I remember being in Morocco not so long ago and uh just learning about the daily bread practices and how everybody has their own recipe and they make the bread at home but then they bring it to local cook ovens to have it cooked
0: so they have all of these community bakeries and you show up and everybody has a different pattern on top of their bread so they know which bread was theirs like somebody might have a triangle somebody might have you know three little um cuts and and uh they bring it in and then there's there's a baker who just bakes every all the community bread and you see um the kids is kind of carrying the bread to the bakery and they might pick it up after school and I've just seen bread practices like that in travels that I find so fascinating because it's in bread is sort of embedded into the culture and the fabric of the day. I love the sound of the idea of going to a restaurant and saying, I just surprised me or, or, um, Cook something you think I'll like. I, I don't do that enough and I should do it more because I was going to a pub here in Lindsborg, Kansas recently. And it's like, why is this sandwich, which I love, called the Brent Nelson? And they said, well, to be honest, it used to just call the Surprise Me. And a guy named Brent Nelson loved what surprised him so much on this February day, 12 years ago, that we just called it the Brent Nelson sandwich because <laughs> he, he stopped wanting to be surprised because what we surprised him with on this day. So that's something that literally happens in Kansas where I live. But it can happen almost anywhere in the world. And basically, one nice thing about that, and this is a strategy I don't use enough, is that you're telling the restaurant, we trust you. Um, you know your food better than I do. So why why have a menu? Just just bring us something awesome. And I bet 90% of the time, it's something
1: that'll blow your mind. Right, so on April the 19th, to move on away from food for a moment, I'm sure we'll circle back to food because it's such an important part of travel, isn't it? You talk about travel scams, Now, this is something I I consider it a bit of a badge of honor on the road, to be honest. And I think if you see it that way, it switches your mindset about it. So it was good. Um, Now, I was talking to someone about this um, a little while ago, in fact, because I got scammed in Istanbul. Not this time, a previous time I've gone with a with a guy who one of the one of the people who shine shoes on the street. He dropped his shoe shine brush whilst he was walking in front of me. And I did the nice thing of picking it up for him and handing it back and saying, thanks. There you go. And he said, oh, to thank you. I'll I'll shine your shoes. Now, I was wearing a pair of Converse which were stuck together by probably just the sweat and mud that was on them. So I was worried they'd fall apart. After cleaning them, he said, that's going to cost... This amount, you know, and it was about twenty English pounds, and I was like, "What? (laughs) No, no, it won't. (laughs) You're having me." And anyway, I I I negotiated with him, and and we got the price to something that cost about the the cost of the trainers rather than four times the cost of the trainers, and then walked off. Only for the for another it to happen again, like just around the corner, another person dropped the brush, and I thought, "Hold on a minute, this is a thing that they're all doing." Mm -hmm. I wonder what, what 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 scam stories you've got, Rolf, that 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 made you. Realize that it is an inevitable, inevitable part of travel.
0: Well, one that happened to me well into my travel writing career, and in fact, well after vagabonding was embraced by people, and I was sort of seen as this travel expert. Uh, I was in Santiago de Chile. I'd just gotten off the airplane from Brazil, and I was, I was a little jet lagged, and I walked in, and in that particular airport, there were people during that era who came in and they they pretended to be tourist information officers and they would come up and welcome you to the country. And they would just sort of figure out ways to scam you. And so I was sort of groggy, and it was like an early morning flight. I hadn't slept very well in the airplane. And after about five minutes of conversation, they realized that my understanding of the exchange rate was one decimal point off. <laughs> So, so they they sold me what I thought was a nice, you know, seven dollar ride to the center of town, which in fact was a seventy dollar ride to the center of town. This is when I was writing columns and was seen as a travel expert worldwide. That I, I stumbled <laughs> off into the most obvious place, and so I think what these people, like that, those guys, aren't going to hang out in some remote valley of Chile because there's no tourist economy there. And so, anytime you're in a tourist zone, you should be a little bit uh, skeptical of the shoe shine or, uh, you know, offers of hospitality, or even like uh, fist fights or or distractions. Because I think oftentimes there's different strategies that pickpockets will employ to get people's attention distracted. Oftentimes it's, you know, whatever, the Eiffel Tower itself that gets people distracted. And so you can resent that stuff, but this is an economy full of people who, for the most part, are probably trying to make a living, you know, and they're just sort of playing the economy of, of ignorance know, of, of tourists not really knowing as much about how things work. And I know that back in the prime of guidebooks, like Lonely Planet always had a little subchapter called Dangers and Annoyances that let you know of the scams. You're talking about Istanbul. I got drugged and robbed there uh, a long time ago, 24 years ago. Uh, I made a great story, but it wasn't a fun experience. Well, if I had read like page 80 of the Lonely Planet, it's a very common scam for them to roofie male travelers who are overconfident in these tourist areas. And so, um, so yeah, I think that this is just something that happens. And the first time I was scammed was actually in Bangkok and it was just sort of, it was sort of like a sleight of hand trick. A guy was wanted to tell my fortune. And I thought, well, I'm a travel writer, so maybe this will make a good story. And he basically tricked me out of some money in a way that I would just, I was just completely humiliated by But I'd given, I I'm the person who humiliated myself. Like I thought you were supposed to to bat a thousand, to use a baseball analogy, American baseball analogy, that anything less than perfection as a young traveler meant that I was an inexperienced traveler. Well, I was, and I got scammed in a tourist zone and that's okay. And, you know, I'm sure the guy needed the money in his own way. And so, yeah, it's just something that happens to us early as travelers and it actually continues to happen if you continue to press that comfort zone. And as I think, maybe even nomadic Matt said this, just consider it sort of a tax, a traveler's tax. It's usually not very much money and it's just it's just an extra tax that is added on to your other expenses and you have a story to tell and you don't have to be really resentful you can just say yeah no that shoeshine boy he was
1: pretty smart and then when like him a couple blocks up. Julie wanted to ask a question which is more about sort of writing processes and 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 the what went into the book. Yeah, I'm really curious to hear a little more if you don't mind sharing. You could cover the entire world in this chapter getting started on the road and I'm curious to know How the meditations you did include hang together in your view and sort of are there through themes that you were contemplating with this collection of meditations in April? And and are there topics that you didn't include that maybe you considered and thought, nah, I'm not going to put that in this book?
0: Well, as for the the themes I didn't include, there were some things that I brought up that my editors decide asked me not to not to touch. You know, Um, for example, there was this great uh, passage uh, by a writer uh, named Camille Dungy, and she's African American. She was traveling in West Africa, and she said one thing she enjoyed was the opportunity to blend in, which she can't do when she's in Colorado, where she lives. And so I sort of use that use uh, her example to talk about how the first time I went to Korea it was the first time I didn't blend in. And suddenly I was on the street and I realized what a privilege it is to blend in. And my editor said, yeah, don't, don't use an African-American example. She, she just thought I didn't have enough room to give that enough nuance. And she didn't want readers to think that I was somehow comparing myself to Camille Dungy's African-American experience. So I think there was a lot of chapters that didn't quite make it in. And um, I wanna touch on some of those uh, in, in my podcast, just because I think they're interesting. but. A one-page meditation sometimes didn't allow me for the for the right kind of nuance. You are talking about through through themes. You notice in, in April there's three chapters in a row that uh, are about my Cuban bagpiper friends. How at first I went to Cuba to learn how to dance, and I sort of liked bagpiping better. And then people, you know, we might think that's a Scotland thing, is it? No, actually, the Spanish bagpipes have been in Cuba since the 19th century, and my friends were super cool, and I was seeing a super cool part of there. And then the third part of that through through line is when I saw them in Canada and, uh, they're like, they'd never been on a Cuba before. And they were so amazed by a Walmart. Right. And I said, here, try Doritos. They're delicious. And they tried them and it's like, is this food? I mean, yeah. and it made me realize <laughs> it made me realize that, yeah, Doritos are kind of a weird food. If you've never had them before, like these mass produced little triangles filled with dusts that t- is supposed to taste like something. Sorry if anybody here works for the Dorito corporation. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So it's, I mean, obviously I'm drawing on 25 years of my own interest in travel and travel literature and 3000 years of travel writing. And you can't have any perfect through lines, but I did want to have each month replicate a certain phase of the journey, which as I came back to the content this morning, I realized that, oh, this is where the journey gets a little tough. This is where the journey uh, involves things like scams or boredom of standing in lines. And so I don't think there's any silver bullet. There's any perfect way to have a, a. In a way, this is more ragged edge than vagabonding, which is a simple, a smaller and simpler book, um, because it goes deep in 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 on these different topics in a way that doesn't always connect from day to day. Um, which is why I encourage people to read it slowly. Um, you don't have to, and several people have already finished the book, even though it hasn't been out for a year. But the purpose was a little bit less linear than um, than um, what vertical. You know, that to go to go deep on several themes one
1: day at a time. Right, and I've got one more one more sort of question I suppose, one more point that I'd like to say and um it's it's become a bit of your a phrase of yours, Rolf, because I've listened to your podcast for a little while and I've 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 heard you speaking about this before. April 22nd you talk about walking until your day becomes interesting, which I loved because it was one of my favorite mantras for travel before I knew really that it was a mantra to travel. I just was a bit averse to getting on the metro and just preferred to sort of walk across the city to find these places. For someone who's not heard that before, what do you mean by that? In a sense, it means
0: letting go, let go of your expectations and let what is right in front of your eyes dictate where you go next. Uh, and as David and, and Renee and other people who have taken my writing classes before will know that it's the idea of the flaneur or the idea of psychogeography and sort of letting the circumstances of the city or the location you are Ah, uh, dictate where you go, and if you hear really amazing flute music coming out of a window, then you can walk over and listen to it longer. If you hear this amazing smell coming out of a here, if you smell an amazing smell coming out of a out of a bakery, then uh, you can linger there for a while and and buy some pastries that you didn't know existed when you woke up this morning. And so uh, I use the word permission a lot in my podcast and in in these settings, and so it's. Walking until your day becomes interesting is really giving yourself permission to not know yet how your day is going to get take form. It's walking out in the street, and instead of having this short list of things that you're going to do, it's, a, it's just keeping your head up, which is harder now than ever when we have this really highly programmed smartphone in our hands, keeping your head up and your nose out and your ears out for whatever might surprise you, because those surprises are what really make travel amazing. And so I don't think I coined this term. I, I've used it enough that people attribute to me that it's fine. <laughs> I think maybe it's Mark Twain, but uh, originally said it. But Walk until your day interesting, and, and that yields rewards probably 99.8% of the time. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including how to sign up for the next Vagabond's Way online book club in October, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.